Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks very much for all tuning in to Radical Philosophy. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Mary Ling about abstract objects. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So would you be able to give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. So I'm currently a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of York in the UK. Prior to that, I worked at the University of Liverpool and I was a research fellow at the University of Cambridge. Um, I did my PhD in Toronto in Canada. So my main route into philosophy really has been via the philosophy of maths, mathematics. So that's also led me to lots of other areas, including philosophy of science, history of analytic philosophy, meta-metaphysics, meta-ethics, um, social ontology. But I suppose first and foremost, I'm still really a philosopher of maths. I suppose there is fairly a strong connection between mathematics and science, isn't there? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So it's hard to do contemporary philosophy of mathematics without getting into philosophy of science because that's where a lot of the main battles happen, really, or the main interactions are. Um, So would you have a definition of abstract objects? So I like to follow what uh, the philosophers Burgess and Rosen have called the way of negation, which involves characterizing abstract objects not by what they are, but what they're not. So I say they're non-spatio-temporal, they're a-causal, they're mind-independent, and they're language-independent objects. Now that's a rather negative characterization, and that might seem unsatisfying for that reason, because I've not said anything positive about what abstract objects are. In fact, one of the central worries about abstract objects stems from this unsatisfying, really, predicament, because we have reasonably good accounts of how we can come to know things about objects that are spatially temporal, causal, or mind-dependent, or language-dependent. But given that abstract objects are really none of those things, without any positive characterization of what they are like, it's hard to say anything not completely mystical about how we can come to have knowledge of them. So... I think it's a feature of the problem about abstract objects is that they tend to be understood negatively. We don't really have a positive account of what what objects of that sort could be like. What was it that inspired you to study abstract objects? Well, maths, really. So when I was in secondary school and started doing more abstract mathematics, in particular things like vector spaces, I found I was suddenly really confused about this. So I had these two maths teachers and I, I teaching me this stuff, and I asked them both, well, what is a vector space? I've not seen these things before. You know, you, you grow up with the numbers, but vector spaces, oh, what's, what's one of those? And one of them sort of said to me, well, here's the axioms. That's 
what more can I say? <laughs> That's what they are. They, they they satisfy these properties, and and that I was unsatisfied with that account. And the, the other the other maths teacher I had had actually studied maths and philosophy himself, and he said, well, you know, if you're asking that kind of question, shouldn't you also be asking what kind of objects numbers are? Um, and so I thought about it, and I thought actually. Yeah, good, good point. I don't really know what objects those are either, aside from what I've been told about, you know, their relation to each other and so on. So that's what got me going on the topic, really. I realised that although we talk about these things all the time, we don't have... It's, there's not an easy answer to what kind of things they are, and I realised um, that that's what philosophers and maths start worrying about, so that's what started me worrying what type of abstract objects are philosophers concerned about? Well, aside from mathematical objects, I suppose there's, there's various things that fall under the umbrella abstract that philosophers worry about. So um, universals or properties, propositions, so the, the things that sentence mean, sentences mean, the meanings of sentences. And things like abstract artefacts, so abstract objects that look like they're in some AR creation, like fictional characters or whole works of fiction or musical works, for that matter, or even scientific theories. I think entire scientific theories wonder, you know, who Einstein came up with relativity, but what was the thing that he came up with? So all of those things and probably more that I've forgotten about to fall under, under the umbrella of abstract objects and all present worries for lots of things to think about. Does two plus three really equal five? <laughs> well, that depends on what you mean by the claim two plus three equals five. So there are some readings of that claim, some ways of understanding that claim where it comes out straightforwardly as true. So, for example, if we thought of it as just a shorthand for the claim, if you combine any two things with any three other things, you get five things. And then as long as we restrict ourselves to talking about the right kinds of things, so the kinds of things that retain their identity when you combine them and don't multiply when you combine them. So, for example, apples would be good, but raindrops and rabbits not so good. Then this is going to be straightforwardly true. Any two apples and any three other apples gives you five apples. In fact, it's going to be a logical truth. You can express it in purely logical terms and show that it comes out as, as logically true. So if that's all we meant by two plus three equals five, yes, that's true. But there's other uses of that claim where it's less straightforward. So in the context of number theory and mathematics, the claim two plus three equals five isn't usually read simply a shorthand for this logical truth, any two things and any three things make five things. Rather, the terms two, three, and five function as names for kinds of objects. So we can, for example, infer from 2 plus 3 equals 5 that there is a number, namely the number 2, which when added to 3 makes 5. So in this context, if we take it at face value, 2 plus 3 equals 5 is committed to the existence of numbers, abstract objects. And it's not so clear, at least to me, that abstract objects exist. So that means it's not so clear to me that 2 plus 3 equals 5 as used by number theorists, is literally true. Though, as I will discuss later, there's a sense in which it's mathematically correct to say that 2 plus 3 equals 5. So it's a better thing to say than 2 plus 3 equals 6, but it's not a literal truth on my understanding. 
Now, I'm just sitting here in the radio studio recording you, and I was thinking about abstract objects, and I've actually got a timer here in front of me, and it's up to mm-hmm. 7 minutes and 57 seconds, and the um, tenth of a second is rolling over so quickly I, I can't yeah. even see it to repeat it. And I thought... Now, where would we be if we didn't have abstract objects like numbers? Because I, I wouldn't know how long the interview was. We wouldn't have time, would we? Yeah. yeah. We certainly can't do without them. There's important senses in which numbers, at least talk of numbers, are <laughs> uh, indispensable to us for all kinds of things. And that's one of one of the central um, issues in, in the philosophy of mathematics. We can't just say, oh, well, it's not, I don't believe in numbers, so I'm not going to use them anymore. <laughs> because we're all going to use them. You know, I can't, if my bank account is overdrawn and the bank comes to me and say, says, come on, you owe us money, I'm, I'm not going to say, well, I don't believe in negative numbers anyway. <laughs> so it's not, that's not going to help me. So we do have to use them. We do the terminology of numbers, we use the correctness of claims within mathematics to, to help us in lots of ways in science and in our everyday lives. What I want to say is none of those uses of mathematics require the literal truth of mathematical claims in, uh, in the sense of there being true about abstract mathematical objects. So I want to say that actually we can make sense of all those uses that we make of mathematics if we just understand ourselves as speaking as if there are these sorts of things for the purposes of allowing us to make measurements and so on. What are mathematical objects and mathematical truths? So mathematical objects are the things that are said to exist by our mathematical theories. So number theory, set theory, count as mathematical theory, so numbers, sets, functions, vector spaces, that kind of thing. Our mathematical truths are true claims about those objects, if there are any. So it's standardly, although in my view incorrectly, thought that mathematical axioms, the axioms of our mathematical theories, assert true claims about the objects that they concern. So, for example, in arithmetic, we have axioms, the piano axioms for arithmetic, and amongst those axioms, we have the claims that zero is a number, that every number has a successor, and a bunch of other things. Right? And collectively, those axioms imply the existence of infinitely many uh, natural numbers, or the counting numbers, zero, one, two, three, dot, dot, dot. I can't say all of them, because there's infinitely many of them. So if the, those axioms are true, then it's also true that infinitely many abstract mathematical objects exist. Tell us about the different views on whether mathematical objects really exist. So the standard view that I've just been talking about is known as mathematical realism or sometimes realism about objects. And according to this view, the axioms of our ordinary mathematical theories express truths about mathematical objects. Now, because attempts to account for these objects as being spatiotemporal or causal or mind-dependent or language-dependent have generally been unconvincing 
know, the number two is not something that you bump into in the street. The most prominent version of realism is mathematical Platonism, which is the view that mathematical objects exist and are abstract. Now, within Platonism, there's, there's lots more to say, so there's room for further disagreement, for example, about which mathematical objects exist. So in mathematics, we tend to work with specific mathematical theories and objects. So we, might, we use set theories, the Mello-Frankel set theory rejection of choice as a backdrop for, for this theorizing. But the axioms of ZFC, the Mello-Frankel set theory with choice, taken together are not sufficient to answer all the questions you might meaningfully ask about the sets. So, for example, there's Cantor's famous continuum hypothesis, which says that all infinite subsets of the real numbers, so the numbers on the continuum or the real line, are either, all the infinite subsets of those numbers are either the same size as the set of all the natural numbers, the counting numbers, or the same size as the set of all the real numbers. So that continuum hypothesis is something that's independent of the actions for standard set theory, ZFC, in the sense that we could we could extend set theory by adding the continuum hypothesis as an extra axiom, and that would be consistent. Or we could extend set theory by adding the negation of the continuum hypothesis, and that would be a consistent theory, too. So some Platonists think that even though there's two different ways we could consistently extend the actions for set theory. Nevertheless, there's a single unique universe of sets, and that universe of sets is the intended interpretation of our actions. So there's only really one way of adding to the actions of set to get things right about the sets. But other Platonists think, well, that's not how things are with the mathematical realm. They think that the mathematical realm is plenitudinous, which means it contains mathematical objects that satisfy the descriptions that are provided by any consistent collection of axioms. So there's a universe of sets in which the continuum hypothesis is true, and another universe of sets in which the continuum hypothesis is false. So this plenitudinous version of Platonism admits more mathematical objects than, than the single universe Platonism. It says that it's logically possible for there to be a mathematical object of a particular sort then an object of that sort exists. So that's between object Platonism, between a sort of single universe version and a multiple universe version. So there, there's that kind of debate within Platonism. There's also worries that come in Platonism about so-called multiple reduction. So, so let me try and explain that. So one worry with standard Platonism, at, at, at least a single universe sort, is that while our mathematical theories describe many mathematical objects, they seem to leave a lot of questions unanswered about them. So in arithmetic, the piano axioms tell us that there are these objects, the natural numbers, and they're arranged in a, an ordered sequence, zero, then one, then two, then three, and so on, something we call an omega sequence. But those axioms are completely silent about lots of questions about the identity of these objects. So, for example, we can embed number theory within set theory by defining numbers to be particular sets. We could take zero to be the empty set and then say, well, let's make one to be the set that contains the empty set and two to be the set that contains one and three to be the set containing two and so on. And then everything we want to say about the numbers, we can say by talking about these particular sets. And that raises 
the question, well, are numbers really just sets? So maybe we don't have two different kinds of mathematical objects, numbers and sets. We just have the sets, and numbers are a particular kind of sets. Now, nothing in the piano axioms for arithmetic really answers that question. It's, the piano axioms don't talk about sets at all. But still, we might think, well, look, given that we found this sequence of objects in amongst the sets that looks just like the natural number sequence, isn't that evidence for us that the natural numbers really are just that sequence of sets? And that might sound fine, except for a little problem, which is that there are actually multiple, in fact, infinitely many different sequences of sets that will do the job of the natural numbers perfectly well. We really have an embarrassment of riches in set theory. There's no good way of choosing any one sequence over any other as the natural numbers. Because we're an object Platonist and we think that number two is an object and is possibly just a set, then there should be an answer to the question of which set it is, if any. Um, and mathematics doesn't seem to provide us any way of answering that question. So a response to this worry within mathematical Platonism is to go structuralist. So structuralists say that what we really, what we really ought to be realist about is abstract mathematical structures, such as the natural number structure. And what the number two is, is just a position in that structure. So there's really nothing more to the nature of the number two than coming after one and before three in the natural number structure. So the number two we can think of as an office that can be held by multiple different office holders in multiple different instances of the natural number structure. So the philosopher Stuart Shapiro has a nice way of explaining this using uh, the example of baseball, but I really don't know very much about baseball, so, so I'm not, I can't talk convincingly about that, so I'll try doing it with netball instead. So if you look at the rules for netball, it says you have, these, you have two teams with seven players each, the positions in the teams being goal shooter, goal attack, goal defense, goal keeper, wing attack, wing defense, and uh, center. And then the rules for netball say, for example, that only the goal attack and the goal shooter can shoot goals. So you can ask the question about netball, does the wing attack shoot goals? And there's a clear answer to that, no. But if we then ask the question, well, does the wing attack have brown hair? And we're asking this as a question about the position in netball and not a question about the partic a particular player in a particular team who's playing netball, then that question's ill-formed. The rules tell us about the netball team structure and about the positions insofar as they're part of that structure. And having brown hair just isn't the kind of property that netball positions as opposed to net particular netball players can have. Now, similarly then, if that makes sense, similarly with the, similarly with the structuralist perspective on the natural numbers, so you have many different sequences of sets that can play the role of the natural numbers. They can instantiate the natural number structure, just as many different groups of people can play the role of the netball players. They can instantiate the netball team structure. But when we're asking questions about the positions in the natural number structure, rather than the particular instance of that structure, it makes sense to ask, does the number two come before zero? And answering no. But it doesn't make sense to ask, does the number two have the empty set as a member? Because that's not the kind of question that applies to positions in the natural number structure. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, 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 no, that, no, I okay. can, I can follow that. It was, okay. uh, the example okay. of the, so, of the so basketball game is very good, netball, yeah. Yeah, okay. 
So those are those really are the leading Platonist views, I'd say. So object Platonism coming in in, in its plenitudinous and non-plenitudinous forms, and then a structural structuralist version of Platonism, which is known as anti-realm structuralism. So then, what about the the other side, the anti-Platonist or so-called nominalist side? Well, on that side, again, there's a bunch of views, but I think I'll I'll just be selfish and focus on the account that I prefer, which is mathematical fictionalism. So fictionalists claim that, at least as far as we can tell, there are no mathematical objects or structures. So we'd better not claim that mathematics is a body of truths about these objects. Instead, the fictionalist likes to think of mathematical theories as, in a sense, analogous with fictions. So if I'm writing a fictional story, I'll write down a bunch of claims which may or may not be actually true. But in, by doing so, I make those claims true in the story. Once upon a time, three bears, and blah, blah, blah. So when an author does that, a lot of other implicit, unsaid things are also made true in the story, just by virtue of following from what's been made explicit, together with perhaps some background knowledge and conventions. So in Hamlet, for example, it's true in the story of Hamlet that Hamlet has a heart and lungs and all the other human organs, even though that's never said, right? It's not made explicit, but it just is part of the background knowledge that we import in, in understanding fiction. But there's other things that are not true in the story simply because Shakespeare didn't say anything about them and that they don't and because they don't follow from context as well as the stipulations that we do have. So in it's not true in the story of Hamlet that Hamlet has green eyes because it's simply left open what colour eyes he has. So with that in mind some questions about Hamlet make sense and can be answered. You can ask the question, did he kill his uncle, and look in the text and answer to that. But others don't. If we ask, did he have green eyes, there's just no answer to that given. What's relevant then to what's true in the story of Hamlet is what can be inferred in context from the things that Shakespeare wrote. But what's not relevant is whether there really is someone somewhere who answers the description of Hamlet. If, even if there was, Shakespeare play, Shakespeare's play was not intended to be about him anyway. So truth in the story is something that is independent of literal truth. We can have truth in fiction without being literally true. Now, in mathematics, fictionists want to say something similar. So in the case of mathematics, fictionists will say that in writing down axioms for mathematical theories, Mathematicians make them true in the story of standard mathematics, or they make them mathematically correct, we might say. But once these axioms have been written down, they'll also have lots of logical consequences that are also true in the story of standard mathematics, regardless of whether we know that they are or not. In fact, part of what makes maths hard and interesting is that it's sometimes rather tricky to work out what these consequences are. Perhaps additional context may contribute to what's true in the story in helping to rule out unintended models of our axioms, for example. So this this addition helps to make sense of the way in which some set theorists might argue about whether to accept the continuum hypothesis or not, right? or whether to add a, an additional axiom to ZFC or not. They have in mind that they, they have an intended model that they're trying to talk about, and what's true in set theory is going to be true of that model. But what's re relevant to what's true in the story of standard mathematics is what follows from our axioms plus perhaps some additional context. 
What's not relevant is whether there really are a bunch of objects that, as a matter of fact, satisfy our mathematical actions. So on the fictionless view, what we're doing when we're doing mathematics is just supposing, for the purposes of pure mathematical theories, that our actions are true, and working out what would be true if those actions were true. But whether the actions really are true of some particular realm of objects is, is irrelevant in this practice. So we go back to the earlier question that you asked about 2 plus 3 equals 5. For a fictionalist, as far as we know at least, 2 plus 3 equals 5 is not literally true. But it certainly is true in the story of mathematics in terms of following from the actions and definitions that we've set up. Could you explain about the recent debate in philosophy about mathematics and how it has turned its attention to the role of mathematics in imperial scientific theorising? Uh, sure. So the central issue between Platonists and anti-Platonists or nominalists, at least certainly in the fictionist form of nominalism, is whether we have any reason to say that our mathematical actions are true as opposed to just speaking as if they are true for the purposes of theorising. So the Platonist says, mathematics, our actions are true, What their truth requires the existence of mathematical objects, so mathematical objects exist, and they must be abstract, because what else could they be? The anti-Platonist says, well, we don't, don't see any reason for saying that our mathematical actions are true. We can make sense of pure mathematical theorising just by... Supposing that, imagining that they are true and work out what, what would follow from that supposition or imagination. So an influential argument which really goes back to W.C. Quine and was articulated further by Hilary Putnam purports to show that the fictionist is wrong about this and that we actually do have good reason to believe that our mathematical theories are true. And this reason comes not from pure mathematics but from when we look at the applications we put mathematics to. So as you talked about earlier, you know, when you use numbers to measure time, for example, bank accounts, we use numbers not just in the context of pure mathematical theories, but in, in mixed contexts where we're talking about properties of physical things, for example. In particular, we use mathematics extensively and apparently indispensably in empirical science, so in, in our ordinary scientific theories. So Quine and Putnam say, look, we have good reason to believe that our scientific theories are true, or at least that they're approximately true. That our scientific theories are mathematical through and through, they make use of numbers, functions, sets all over the place. So if we think our scientific theories are true, and that the objects that they suppose to exist really do exist, then we ought to conclude that mathematical objects exist as well. So the merely hypothetical approach that works for pure math that says let's just speak as if there are numbers but we not really mean it doesn't really cut ice in uh, they think in empirical science because they think well we really mean that our empirical scientific claims are true and if we really mean that they're true then we can't just say we can't then take that away and say oh by the way I didn't I didn't mean the bits about mathematics Putnam says it's intellectually dishonest to deny the existence of what one day presupposes if we're here using using the numbers to measure time on your clock, we're using the numbers to write our scientific laws, we talk about the mass function as a function from of massive objects to real numbers that represent their mass as a multiple of some, some unit of mass. 
All of those things, if we're going to do that, then it's intellectually dishonest to say as the fiction is this, oh, but by the way, I don't really believe in numbers. So that, that argument's been very influential and has stood behind a lot of recent debate in the philosophy of mathematics between Platonists and anti-Platonists, where anti-Platonists have had to um, respond to that argument by trying to show that we can make sense of our scientific theories even if we just take a kind of as-is attitude to the mathematical components. Great. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been uh, nice talking to you. And I've been speaking with Dr Mary Ling about abstract objects. Well, thanks very much for listening and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.